Welcome back to another episode of Whatever I Want with Logan Lewis. I'm your host, of course, Logan Lewis. It is Sunday, October something, 2020, and I have a really awesome guest as always. But first, let me remind you guys the key key programming notes before we get started. Make sure you are subscribed on Apple and Spotify or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts, of course whether it's Google, Amazon, uh, Stitcher, wherever, I'm there. Make sure that you've left that rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's what gets us noticed. Uh, Go check out the new Watchdog Media website, the umbrella that uh, owns all of the podcasts that I do. That is what I started, Watchdog Media. And uh, we just launched this brand new website that has really cool details about all of the different shows. There's like forms you can fill out if you'd like to be a guest, if you'd like to advertise with us, whatever you want, whatever I want. That's what we're here to do today. Um, And yeah, we're really excited. I've got an awesome guest today. This is a person that I've known for a while, but again, like all the other interviews on here, I don't know, know very super well, so I'm excited for it. He is somebody who's worked in uh, his industry, the the construction and architecture uh, industry, for 52 years. He started when he was just 14 years old, and he's still kicking. He has retired in the past year or so. I think it's been a year. And then he's uh, written a book. He's He's got so much stuff and experience under his belt. I'm honored to be sitting across from Mike Lefevre. Hello, Mike. Hey, Logan. Thanks for having me, man. This, this is an honor to be asked. You know, this is this is not something we did when I was your age. We didn't have these technologies, number one. And we weren't smart enough to go out and talk to, you know, interesting people that were different than us. Certainly to older people, you know, we <laughs> didn't want anything to do with them. So yeah, I'm honored and it'll be fun to see where we go. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I've wanted to do this for actually a long time, but then COVID hit and... Uh, it kind of pushed everything back. I didn't want to, I I know that um, a lot of people different have different sensitivities to COVID and stuff. So I didn't want to do, I didn't want to do one virtually with you. I wanted to do one across from you. So I was willing to wait till things kind of calmed down. Um, just cause we also live so close. I'm like 10 minutes down the road, kind of close to the office. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm honored to be sitting across you. Thank you for taking the time to be talking to me. Yeah, man. Well, it's great to see you. Yeah. Glad you're still doing well. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to get right into it. First of all, how do we know each other, Mike? Well, um, let's see. 23 years ago now, I I left architecture with a crazy notion that our industry was changing. And I invented a job at Holder Construction Company. And I uh, had breakfast with Tommy Holder, and he, he hired me there to create a new role. And over those 20-some years, I migrated through pre-construction, design management. I founded our BIM group, building information modeling there. And uh, in, my, in the end of my career, I came back around to design management. And in the last few years, there was this uh, smart, very personable young guy who came around to help with my information technology and keep my computer functioning. <laughs> and that was you. So uh, that's you kept me out of trouble. So you were a very valuable guy. 
Well, that was Logan Lewis. Wow, that was that was that was quite a few years ago. Now it's probably been like two or three years ago. That's that's yeah, wild. Yeah. I, really. I time flies uh, when you're having fun. So I want to I want to get the Mike uh, the origin story of you. Like, tell me about you know when you were a kid. Did you ever think about getting? Were you always looking at architecture and construction? Were you always going for that? Were, were you majoring in that in college? Like, what were you like in college? Were you involved with Greek life? Were you, what were you doing? Give me the Mike Lefevre origin story pre, pre full-time career. Okay. I, I'm kind of a rare uh, breed anymore. Um, starting at the age of about 10, I was drawing and drawing buildings. And I had this inkling that I thought I might want to go into architecture. Uh, my mother was very creative. My father was a little more, matter of fact, business-like. He had been in the Navy, and we were, we were living in Detroit. So he worked for Ford Motor Company all of his life, like, like so many people did up there. So I had those Midwestern roots, but kind of a creative bent. And uh, in junior high, I took a drafting class, was good enough to get good grades there, and I said, I, I want to pursue this. So in the little hometown where I lived, Plymouth, Michigan, there was this very modern sign hanging above a flower shop. And I walked in there one day at the age of 14 with my drawings and said, hey, mister, what do you do here? I'd like to work here. And this, this guy, he, he looked like the street sweeper from the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. He had a big handlebar mustache <laughs> and, a, and a big horn rim glasses. And he looked at my drawings and he said, frankly, you should be paying me for what you're going to learn if you come to work here. And he hired me for 50 cents an hour. Wow. That was in 1968. And my friends working at McDonald's made $1.20 an hour. So I was lucky enough to get this job. And this guy was an incredible architect became like a second father to me. And uh, not long afterward, another colleague came to work there. And he was a guy named Terry Sargent, who was already in architecture school at Michigan. So again, very lucky at a young age to knew what I, know what I wanted to do. The three of us worked together in this tiny little office, no bigger than this kitchen that you and I are sitting in right now. And uh, that became the springboard to an architectural career. Wow. That I followed for the next 50 years in one form or another. Wow. That's, that's, that's awesome. 50 cents an hour. I can't cents imagine an walking into a place today and them telling me they're going to pay me 50 cents an hour. I'd throw the, my coffee in their face. Yep. Wow. And your friends were making $1.20. Were they ever like, what are you doing? Like, well, absolutely. Yeah. Said, You're crazy, man. What are you doing? Yeah. We're flipping burgers and we get twice that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And you here are actually going to try to contribute to... Not saying that they weren't contributing to site, but you you know you're you were doing something real and real cool, and and you're getting paid less than half than the, what they were making. They they must have thought you were insane. Everyone must have thought you were you know, insane. My parents, I think I left a job that was paying three dollars an hour or something to go take this other one because it was what I loved. But in in a matter of a short order of time, we won a Progressive Architecture Design Award, which is like the equivalent of winning an Oscar. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the highest award in the profession for unbuilt conceptual work. And I was a member of the team. I had done drawings and built the models. 
I'm lucky enough to sit in this room with these two great architects. And, uh, you know, we were talking theory and philosophy. We were doing high architecture. We, we were doing mostly mid-century modern houses and some commercial work, but it was high design work, not just a house that you'd see in a normal subdivision. And that was before I was in architecture school. So, again, very lucky to have that kind of mentorship. But, you know, it's, it's a rare example of one of the few times in my life where I consciously said, I'm going to go do this, rather than just something happening to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a great example of how that works out when you do that. Hey, Mike, do you care if I ask you to hold the microphone? No, that's okay. It's okay. Whenever we're moving around and stuff, the it, it kind of okay. It kind of cuts in and out. So if, okay, yeah, good attempt with the with the dog toy, but uh, I'll sure. I'll cut this out. No problem. Sure. Um. So so that's awesome, man. Uh, I I can't imagine. I I've always had. Uh, well, since Dad taught me since I was a young age, if you if you want something, you got to go get it. He said, "There's a difference between the people that apply for jobs when they're in high school." They go and just submit the application. Well, we had the honor of being able to, or, or the privilege of being able to submit the applications online uh, on a computer. Um, I'm sure you had to go in person to get the job application or tell the store owner that you wanted to work there. But he told me, as soon as you submit that application online, you need to go the next day to that business and say, hey, I submitted an application online and I really want to work here. And if they said they're not hiring, he said that to tell them to, that you're going to come back tomorrow. He said, all right, I'll come back tomorrow. And I did that for my first job. I think I, w I wanted to work at a movie theater when we lived in Virginia for the DD4 projects. I think DD3 and DD4 is what he was on. Maybe DD2. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, uh, I went to that movie theater and I said, are you guys hiring? And they said, nope. And I said, all right, I'll be back tomorrow. And they said, what, what we're not hiring. And I said, I know. And that's what got me the job. <laughs> they, they, they liked my balls, in, for lack of a better term. They liked the guts that I had. Um, that's cool, yeah. I'm not sure I had that kind of uh, aggressive or, you know, proactive initiative focus from my parents. So that, that's wonderful that you got that from your, from your dad. What were, you, what were you like in college? Were you a bookworm? Were you always studying? Or were you, were you throwing, were you doing keg stands and, and stuff? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, interestingly, all, all of the above. Even in high school, I was the kind of guy that played to different audiences. I got along with some nerds. Uh, I, I ran with the jocks. I was yep. an athlete, played sports, certainly liked girls, always had this passion for, for architecture. And even the, the kind of the greasers and the, that's what we called them back yeah. in our day, the hoodlums and the, <laughs> the guys hoodlums. who smoked and, the, yeah. you know, uh, John Travolta looking guys with leather jackets. <laughs> I, I could hang with those guys too. So I, I really had lots of irons in the fire. And uh, so it was never one thing in any way. And then when I finally was lucky enough to get into college, the first year I commuted from home because we lived close to Ann Arbor. And I got a good, uh, some good grades and a good year under my belt. And then I said, okay, I want the full experience. I'm going to college. And I roomed with this guy, blind, blind roommate, never met him before. And man, I availed myself of all there was to avail yourself of <laughs> Ann Arbor in the 1970s. You know, <laughs> we went to the football games. We drank more beer than you ever saw. <laughs> Ann Arbor was a pretty liberal place, so there was pot going around, and mm -hmm. it was the 
in, after the heyday of Woodstock. So we had yeah. peace, love, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Yeah. You know, we did it all. And, and as a result, the first, and I, and I tried out for the hockey team. Wow. Division one varsity hockey team at Michigan. That year they played for the national championship. These guys had all come down from Canada and they were good. And I just tried to walk on. I played what's called junior B hockey. So I was doing that. I was taking uh, physics, econ, uh, English, and calculus in that year. And as a result of too much of all of that indulgence, <laughs> I got a nice letter to me from the dean's office that said, your, your uh, one C and three Ds are not going to cut it here anymore. Wow. If you don't straighten out, bye-bye. I was on probation. And so it was the greatest wake-up call, mm-hmm. that failure. So I slowed down. I took fewer courses. I buckled down, and I did what I had to stay in school and get accepted in architecture school. So great lesson for me and, you know, time management. And, again, we were so social. Mm-hmm. Everybody came to by our dorm room and wanted to talk and gab and goof around and party. So, no, we we sort of distanced ourselves from the Greek movement, but we had our own equivalent of a yeah. fraternity, the our close gang that we hang hung around with, and uh, taught me some discipline. You know, best thing that ever happened to me was was failing, and recovering from that. Wow, that they always do say that failure is one of the best teachers or, or something like that. So there's Absolutely. some expression. Absolutely. That's I wish it. I would have failed more. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that I fail a lot because it drives me to be better. I can think of some of those days walking back from hockey practice, you know, having failed another exam, being overwhelmed and just thinking, boy, there's, there's nobody who's going to do this, but you, you better straighten out. You know? mm-hmm. Great lessons. Wow. So skipping fast forwarding to Holder, so you had breakfast with Tommy way back when, and you pitched to him this BIM idea? No, it was before BIM. I, I pitched, had you ever thought of, you know, I see this industry changing. Have you ever thought of bringing on a guy like me? And here's what I could do. I could help us think about how designers think. I could help us get along with them. I can help us visualize projects and do cost estimates. There was a little notion of BIM. I said, I've got some of these skills in drawing and sketching and CAD that could help us make that connection. But BIM wasn't even a thing yet. Mm -hmm. This was 1987. No, 1997. So it was just emerging. Mm -hmm. And Tommy kind of said, wow, you know, interesting. And I wrote a little, actually, a, a kind of a business plan that says, here's what I think I could do. Mm-hmm. I could consult and do this handful of things, and I could not, I use the old BAS line, BASF Corporation. We don't make the things you use. We make the things you use better. Mm-hmm. And that was my pitch to Tommy in this intersection between design and construction. And he said, wow, interesting. We've never talked about having somebody like that, but we know you. We know you're a good guy. We've done a couple projects with you, and we know you're a good collaborator. And we're doing a lot of that in our work now in design assist and design build. So very interesting concept. 
had never considered it. Let me go back and pitch that to the rest of the leadership team. And he did. And two weeks later, they called and made me a job offer to a position yet to be defined mm-hmm. based on my premise and my business plan. And it all worked out. As Tommy always said, it was a great leap of faith to bring on a crazy guy like Mike Lefevre. <laughs> but it really worked out, you know. <laughs> and that's another thing. That's one of the other examples where I said, I've got an idea. I'm going to do something about it. And let's and having enough confidence in yourself to say, Let's make this work. You made it work. Yeah. It worked. How long were you at Holder before you retired? So the last year or so, maybe was it more years or so that you moved up to that office on, was it 12? And, you know, I was in there with you helping you out with your phone and your screens and stuff. And you said that you're, you don't technically work at Holder anymore, but you are a consultant. How, how did that yeah. work? Did you retire and just say, I'll just stay on as a consultant? Or how does that work? That was work? really the very end. It, it, after giving birth to the BIM group, um, we all decided it would be good for me to move aside and let the generation of people beneath me spread their wings and, and grow. Because as long as I sat in that chair and oversaw the, the BIM department, Everybody always turned to me for the answers and the strategy and what should we do. So somewhat reluctantly, but, but I knew it was good for them and good for me. Um, I moved out of the way and physically even moved offices so that I wasn't there with them. So they wow. had to grow and spread their wings. And it was, it was also good for me in that it took me back to my roots in design management. It also gave me the time and the freedom to... Um, help oversee my mother who was suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia mm-hmm. and really failing at that time. So it gave me a little more freedom that I didn't have to turn in the department budgets and, and run things on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of, we agreed to call me a consultant in my last six months or so of tenure there at Holder. So it was perfect. It kind of gave me some freedom as well. And yeah, I was a consultant. I was a mentor to the business development and the creative services department, teaching and writing. And uh, that was that period when I was finishing up my book. Holder was gracious enough to let me do that as kind of my legacy to the firm in my last months there without the, the everyday pressures of I have to get this project out the door and I have to mm-hmm. see this department. So. It was really a great, uh, kind of a great transitional time. Wow. So BIM, how did, how was the origin of, of BIM? How did that happen? You said you had that background in CAD and that you, you were drawing since you were 10 years old. How did you pitch that to, to the group? Well, my, my former firm where I left as a principal, Lord X Sergeant, based in Atlanta with a series of former colleagues from Erie, and then in Lord X Sergeant, was always a technology leader. And I had that at Heary and Lord X Sergeant. Uh, we always saw, how could you not practice architecture without having all the information, without having it accurately, without using the new tools that were at our disposal, which in the early days was called CAD, computer-aided design, then morphed and migrated to BIM, Building Information Modeling. So I had the benefit of knowing a lot about that and having experience with that. 
So then at Holder, as this started to emerge, we formed kind of an initiative and a committee. There was some younger people that had had some exposure to that that was new. Uh, Mike Kennig was a part of the team and a couple other younger people. But we, we had hired nobody with any skills in that regard. We had no software. We did some, what do you want to call it, pilots and trial exposures and playing with software. And eventually uh, I was tapped as the, the kind of the leader to shape those explorations and those pilots because I could speak the language and because I had experience with it. Finally, we bought a seat of software. Finally, we hired a person. The first person we hired was Adam Bauman <laughs> from Purdue who had a degree in this, albeit he had been working on residential work. So Adam knew how to do the keyboard crashing and the software. I had the experience in the industry to know how to apply these tools and applications to uses in a construction company. So somebody would come by and say, well, I'm trying to visualize how we're going to do this excavation and lay the soil back. Can this new tool set do that for me? And Adam didn't know what he was doing because he had never <laughs> worked in commercial construction, yeah. but he knew how to use the tool set. And so together we made a great team. And we'd say, yes, we can. And I'd say, Adam, here's what we need. Can you visualize this? Can you do this? And he'd do it. And I'd shape it and give it a name, kind of did the, the marketing and the use case testing. And we'd give it to this person and they'd say, this is incredible. Can I have some more? Mm -hmm. And so we'd do these little small forays and explorations and we had small wins and then we'd share them with other people in the company and we gradually asked for a little more money, a little more funding, mm -hmm. a little more work. We hired another people. We'd get some software. And so together, with Adam doing the doing and me doing the disrupting and making the use cases, and I was constantly fighting, fighting with, you know, because we, we didn't have a budget. I would fight with Dave Miller to say, Dave, we need bigger monitors. Yeah. And Dave would say, well, convince me. You know, because if you get them, everybody in the company is going to want them. Yep. And I'd say, well, we're spending all day scrolling back and forth to see these things better and doing bigger. And the monitor only, at that time, the monitor costs $1,000. Right, yeah. You know, and so Dave, you know, did a great job of, of controlling the purse strings and making us make the case. Whereas Adam and our next handful of people, we quickly grew to two people and to four and to eight. And to 16, and then to 32, we doubled every year for four years. Yeah. And our we were the fastest growing department in the company to the point where it's like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do with this? You know, we, we needed more space. We needed more software. And I was always fighting for that. I wanted a budget, trying to always demonstrate the, the ROI in the business case for what we did for the company. And, uh, you know, a few years later, Everybody in the company had these huge monitors mm -hmm. because at that point they only cost a hundred dollars or yeah. two hundred dollars, and we all need them. Well, I had to blaze that trail and and fight, you know. So you you had to go beyond what you loved doing, and teach yourself to be a crusader, and an evangelist, and a change agent. Many times, ruffling feathers, 
uh, had to teach all these people who would say, we need all this stuff, Mike. And I'd say, why? And they'd say, because it's cool. Yeah. I go, well, give me something more than it's cool. Yeah. Can you develop a business use case? Here are the costs. Here are the benefits. And not just the first cost, but long term. Mm-hmm. If we get this software, we're going to have to train everybody in the company to do this. What are the training costs? What are the long term costs? And these were all people who didn't learn how to do this in school. They learned how to draw 3D models. Most of them were nerds and geeks <laughs> and propeller heads. <laughs> and you had to teach them how to be business people. Yeah, yeah. And, and how to, and on the social side, how to talk to their customers. Yeah. You can't just talk about uh, families and assemblies and software because the superintendents at Holder Construction Company don't know how to talk that way. Yeah. Dave Miller and Tommy Holder didn't know how to talk that way. So on the on the social and the communication side, you had to teach them to say, let's speak your language. If you're a superintendent, what are you trying to do? Well, I'm trying to see how these these beams and ducts are going to come together. Yeah. And they're going to clash in the field. Okay, I can help you with your problem. I can do that for you. Let's speak your language and let's do that. So my role was always for the vision, the strategy, the language, the sociology, and their role was always the technology. And together we made a very powerful team. We became one of the leading groups in the country in just a few years in, in blazing that trail in, in BIM. So fun times. Wow. Do you remember the first project at Holder that implemented like a BIM person on site full time? Um, I do actually, and and you probably you may not know this, but it was, and I'm answering a slightly different question. But one of the first projects we ever did at Holder was with your father. Wow, really? He was building a little office building out in uh, the Carolinas, I think. The Charles? No, it wasn't. It wasn't the co- no. I think they were doing in Char- was it maybe North Carolina? I think it might have been North Carolina. It, it, it might have been. I can't remember the name of the project, but we did some collision detection and some three D modeling, mm-hmm. and we gave it to him, and he said, "This is incredible." And your father wa- was young for a superintendent, but he was always embracing uh, the use of new technology, and we sort of forced him a little bit, twisted his arm to mm-hmm. try this new stuff, and he said, "Wow, this is great!" You know, again. Give me more. Yeah. And, and what new ways can we use this stuff? And so he was one of the pioneers. And we would take the small wins that we had with him, show it to the other superintendents, show it to the people who controlled the, the departmental budgetary purse strings and, and said, here's our pilot. Look how well it worked. Yeah. Let's do more. Give me more people. Give me more money. This is the way of the future. I've never asked Alex, Edgar, or Shanna or anybody this question, but when did BIM kind of transform to, you know, for forever y'all called it BIM, building information modeling. Yeah. But over the past few years, I guess it's adopted the VDC name. Yeah. Is, is there a difference or is there, or was it just, did it just make more sense to call it a different acronym because there there's more than just modeling involved? That's right. Well, building information modeling or BIM was the first name that came in the industry, and it lar- largely came out of design mm-hmm. because it was the building. It wasn't just about the 3D modeling. It was about 
loading that with information and data. Mm-hmm. So BIM became the acronym, and that's what we used. Uh, as the senior most person overseeing the department, I would always go to the industry leadership events to see what was happening next. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, the contractors, because they were better uh, embracers of risk and new technology, and because they were more profitable, they had more money to invest in R&D, they embraced BIM more quickly than the design community did. And very quickly, they said, well, we're not, we're not actually doing the, the building modelers, uh, the building models, the designers are. But what we're doing with it is a broader perspective. We're doing virtual design and construction. So I would say BIM is a subset of VDC. Mm-hmm. And again, in my role as the boundary pusher, I pushed that name five or seven years ago, mm-hmm. and it sort of fell on the floor. It met, met with resistance. People weren't just ready yet. It wasn't time, which was almost always my role. <laughs> I would push, pushing it. push things, and it wasn't quite ready yet, but I planted the seed, and a few years later it came time. And then after I had stepped aside, Mike Duell and Shanna and Edgar and Alex Edgar pushed that it was finally time for that name, and it, it took hold overnight. And I'm, and I'm sitting there over in the corner, sort of like the brown grandfather said, yeah. Yeah. I, I made this pitch five years ago, and it's finally it's finally coming to be time, and that's, that's when the change took. So we caught up with what the rest of the industry was doing. Wow. Um, let's switch gears. Let's, sure. So I remember when I, back when I was an intern and I came into your office um, and, uh, and helped you with some miscellaneous issue, probably getting your screens to connect. That was a big one when we moved into the new office uh, down the street. But um, I remember that you had this big, thick uh, stack of paper on your desk and you're like, Oh, you can move this. And then I moved it and I saw that it said like draft on it or something. And I was like, I was like, pardon me for uh, asking, but is this a book that you're writing? And and then you said, yeah, this is a book that I'm writing. And you mentioned earlier how it might've been your legacy or something. Tell me about what it takes to what it took to write that thing. Like I, I, to this day still, I'm, I'm working with some people possibly to make it happen now, but I I really want to write, a children's book. Um, don't know about what yet, but I, 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 I've always loved writing. Uh, I, I write. I now started writing for one of my friends' pop culture and entertainment websites. I write about pop culture weekly. I've done it for like the past month now, and I love to write. And I've thought like I want to write a book, but I don't know how to start. How did How did that happen for you? When did you When did it click? And you thought, you know, I'm going to write a book, and that's going to be my exit interview almost type deal. Yeah. Um, well, for me, it, I, I would attribute it to maybe maybe three different things. Number one, I was a passable writer in school. Maybe bees would never say that I loved it. Never aspired to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I love to draw. Yeah. You're the opposite. You're the illustrator. Uh, yeah, I, I've, I was a vocal enough person, but I, but I was passable and, and, and got by. I wasn't an A student or writer, but I got, I got by. But I would say the spark was, and maybe this comes from finding what you love 
or maybe it just goes to the kind of person who I hope everybody finds this spark in themselves, but uh, the great artists and, and particularly writers, but, but, but artists of all kinds, I would say, use this expression. A good writer is simply just a keener observer of life. They live in the moment. They're looking. They're listening. When a, when a flower is beautiful, they take note of it. When you, when you say something that's a good turn of phrase, it, it registers, and you, and you tuck that away somewhere. So you got to be in the game and be looking and being a student of the game, continually learning, gathering, collecting these seeds and experiencing things to have something to write about. The, the other thing I'll say, every writer will tell you, to be a good writer, you've got to be a good reader. So you have to have experience, you got to be looking, and you got to be a good reader. So not, now you got some stuff to draw from. And subliminally, whether I knew it or not, whether I ever thought of myself in that way, I must have been doing that from a very early age. Just, just continually learning and connect, collecting. Uh, the aspect of writing specifically for me, I would say, is an uncanny example of technology changing the game in a transformative way. Somewhere around the 80s, when I got my first computer, this big desktop, this was before email, before the internet, we mm -hmm. had these big bulky computers, the ability to capture what you might be thinking and write it and save it and reuse it and cut and paste it and then go into the internet and highlight, copy and paste what somebody else might have said and tuck it away without having to have written it all longhand mm -hmm. and stash it away in these little cubby holes was world-changing for me. Yeah. So now that I was already this saver and hoarder of ideas, I can, I can cut and paste a great quote, an idea, something that I wrote here as an essay. So I began to become a writer because of the tool, mm -hmm. because you of the technology. Of and I just started hoarding all these little things and saved them and tucked them away. And so I began writing back in the 80s. Again, so being a student of the game, I'm formulating ideas. I think this is wrong, and I have an idea about this. I'm going to write it. I'm going to tuck it away. Here's a good quote. I'm going to write that and tuck that away. Again, saving all this stuff. Finally, when you get to be an old bastard, <laughs> you get to the point in your life and you say, I'm going to do something about it. Yeah. And I've got the time, and I think I've got something to say. I found my voice, and people have told me, you know, A, that you're a pretty good listener, B, that you have a pretty good way of phrasing things so that they stick, and you've collected all this crap over the years. You finally say, as, as I mentioned earlier, another example of having the initiative to say, by God, I'm going to do this. And you get to a place where you're pressures are a little more removed, or you say that it's important enough that you're going to stay up at night to the exclusion of watching the ball game, or in some case you could be playing with your, your daughter or going out and exercising and being healthy, 
you're going to devote some energy to doing this because you've declared it's important enough to you. And then I get to the place at, at work, actually, where I was lucky enough to propose to the company that I can see the end of my horizon here within this company, and I do have something unique to offer. You've told me that. Would you entertain the idea of, as my parting gift, to let me record all these tools and things that I've created in breaking boundaries and let me write that down partially uh, supported by the company so that when I leave, I can give this can leave this behind as my legacy to the company. And they said, okay. So that's really a three-part, very long answer to how, <laughs> uh, how writing a book becomes, comes about. So you featured a lot of people in that book, you, either quotes or excerpts for, from things that they said. How did you go about choosing those people? More specifically, uh, my dad was one of those people that you included in your book. Did he have to jump through hoops? Did he have to audition? How, how did you pick those select people that you chose uh, to, to be in that book? How did you, how did you go about that process? Well, there, there's just two parts of that. First of all, in kind of classic way, that a lot of architects would have this kind of ego-driven, you know, this is about me and my journey. I started on that way, and the first versions of the book were this long journey, including everything I ever did or thought about in my whole career. So the challenge, like any good design exercise, was to reduce it and focus on it. But at some point, you realize it's not about you. And as a statement of our industry, it's about working in teams. And it's about having multiple perspectives. And in, in a very weird sense, it was an early eye-opening realization of what we would call today diversity and inclusion and mm -hmm. equity. And I realized I need more perspectives. It's not about me, it's about we. And so I sought out to show some of the inherent problems in our industry. Let's get these multiple perspectives from not just architects, but engineers, owners, clients, contractors, and I had the luxury, because it was my project, my program, I looked for people who I thought were interesting, fun, would have something unique to say, and might actually be provocative and be fun. I didn't want people who were spewing out cliches and would mm -hmm. say boring things. Not, not to get political here, but I didn't want any uh, Mike Pence's. <laughs> my political view just I feel he just sort of drones on yeah I would rather have somebody that had some uh, had some cojones and wouldn't be afraid <laughs> to say something interesting so I thought your dad was one of those guys he was young he had an opinion uh, early embracer of technology oh and the other reason is that I chose your dad was people always told me, Mike, as a guy who, in a very interesting way, crossed over from design to construction, we need to hear from those construction kinds of people. Somebody yeah. who had their boots on the ground. How do they see the world? Mike, over your whole life, you've hung around with all these architectural types, but give us the contractor's perspective. So that's absolutely why, several reasons why I went to your father. And he did a great job 
of, you know, very poignantly picking four primary reasons right off the bat, things that he's worried about and things that he had to say in ways that I never could have predicted. He was a great interview. Wow. Did you like sit down with them over time and do this? Or was it when you were writing the book, you were like, all right, I'm going to talk to these people for 20 minutes and and do it? Or did you gather just stuff over the years that they had said and you finally said, all right, I have all these snips of Uh, what people said? It was funny. Almost universally, I think in every case I sent some questions out in advance to give them some time to think. And then either in person or on a like a one hour long recorded call, mm-hmm. uh, we had the interview and I pressed the record button and I transcribed it. So they were all very short, very focused. And typically in an hour, there was plenty of fodder for a great five to ten pages worth of very powerful stuff. Yeah. So I, I interestingly, I either got lucky or I chose very well. <laughs> because all these people had something to say and it was provocative and it always took us off in a slightly different vector than the last person had. I, I hope that people will find them an interesting set of perspectives. Yeah, I need to, I, I haven't read the full thing. I read the excerpt that my dad was a part of. I need to get my hands on one. I'm sure I could just steal mom and dad's. Oh, no, you need to buy one. Oh, yeah. Logan, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Mike. I'll, Those royalties I'll are get, rolling in. I'll get on Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble or wherever yeah. I can find uh, your book, and I'll have to pick myself up one. And, and as my fee for doing this interview, <laughs> you're required to going on Amazon and doing a review of the book. Okay, I sure and give will. give me a star rating. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. That's 10-4. I, I can make that happen. Um, all right. Those were my warm-up questions. Cool. No, I'm just fine. Uh, what would you say uh, is your biggest accomplishment? Wow. Um, I would say the one that probably got the most recognition and leverage and, and impact, and it's, it's not necessarily one accomplishment, but it's, it's having the courage to step out of my own comfort zone and industry and in the boundary-breaking act of leaving traditional design and joining a whole new industry in construction. People saw that as either really stupid, uh, what the hell's wrong with you, Mike? You were, you were a great architect. <laughs> you left all of your political capital on the table and and stepped off, jumped off the building to do this. Other people from the design side said, oh my God, you have no integrity. Yeah. You, you went to work with these horrible contractors who have <laughs> horns and speak with forked tongues. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but a much broader set of people said that was uh, game changing for you to have done that and you've paved the way for others to do that and and." St- having the courage to step outside of that, the world that I knew, opened up doors, uh, enabled me to have more leverage, uh, work on a wider set of projects, work on projects like the billion and a half Mercedes Benz Stadium, Mm -hmm. the $5 billion Apple headquarters with the world's greatest architect, uh, Norman Foster, and to see the world in different ways and be able to write, record, and give back 
so much more than I ever did mm -hmm. just through the leverage of my own design firm. I'd say that, I don't know if you want to call it an accomplishment, but uh, I do. Yeah, for sure. And and in opposite of that, what do you have any regrets? You have talked to me for the last almost hour about all of these amazing things, and it, it doesn't seem like you regret any. Do you regret anything about where you've um, been? Absolutely not. As I said already, I had times where I had a few failures or when things were really tough, but those were where I learned the most. So my only regret was I didn't try that more. Mm -hmm. I should have tried more things that had more failures. Who knows where I could have been, you know. Yeah. But, but maybe I operated in just the right comfort zone. So re real regrets, absolutely not. Wow. Um, who, was, who was your biggest influence in being who you became? Um, I'd, I'd call on a couple very different types of people. In the architectural community, they were these two very quiet, sincere, capable architects I worked with inside of this very small office. The first fellow was on the faculty at Michigan, was a Hungarian architect named Tividar Balog, an incredible mentor. At the same time, Terry Sargent, the two of them were the most capable architects I ever knew. Um, following that, there were people like Larry Lord at Lord X Sargent who taught me about empowerment and leadership by kind of pushing me out there on the limb and getting out there with me saying, try it, grab the, grab the brass ring and don't be afraid to take on leadership roles beyond just being a designer. And then having made the leap to Holder, there are people like... Uh, Wayne Wadsworth and Mike Kennig, mm -hmm. who taught me about leadership and risk management in entirely new ways than I ever knew as being an architect, empowering, managing risk, and in a way um, helping me go beyond what I could have done, but yet helping me not uh, hang myself with some of these crazy <laughs> wild ideas and <laughs> And having the sense to operate within the more conservative world of a national construction company. So they understood who I was and helped me. That was, you know, five or six great mentors who I believe in this world, there probably aren't single mentors anymore. You need to go out there and pull the best of a multiple set mm -hmm. of mentors to uh, survive in a more crazy world. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and then finally, uh, you've, you've thrown the word legacy out a few times. Is the book your legacy? What is the legacy? If there's young, young bucks listening to this and they want a, a mission statement or a message, what, what would you, what one piece of advice or something that you would tell people like me or anybody else listening? Well, I think in tangible form, it certainly is. Um, I can look at all my projects and all the work I left behind at Holder and these two uh, service areas within an incredible organization that I left behind. The Planning and Design Support Services Group, which I founded, the Virtual Design and Construction Group, which I founded and led and shaped. You know, all those things are my legacy. And then, uh, you know, just the ongoing 
freedom to be a mentor to anybody who wants to call and talk to me. Younger people like you or you know anybody who ever calls me, I'm continuing to lecture and preach and speak. I was out there really on kind of a book tour, preaching the book and preaching this kind of change in evangelism before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. I'd slowed it down a good bit, and now I'm yeah. doing it on Zoom and virtually, but I'm still doing that, and you know, hope to continue to. I think those things are my, my legacy. Well, cool. So at the Amen. beginning, I mentioned to you before we started that I ask every guest uh, a grouping of questions. There's uh, ten or five to ten questions that uh, seems you, you get to know someone pretty well by, by asking these questions, kind of like first date questions. Very easy, no I'm not going to come at your neck and ask you something silly or threatening. Uh, I'll start it off. Uh, what do you get when you go to the movies? Oh, man. Um, you know, it either goes in one of two directions. It's either it's either chocolate or then it's salty popcorn. And salty popcorn. Something to wash it down with. Oh, yeah. Coke, you know. Yeah. Do you, when you, when you get that popcorn, do you butter it? Do you ask them to fill it halfway oh, yeah, my, up? And My wife has a absolute salt salt addiction so we oh yeah load it up and just you know gorge ourselves do you have much time to sit down and and watch tv when when you watch tv what's the last series or documentary or something you give off uh, uh vibes from a, a of a guy that really enjoys a good documentary do you what's the last thing you actually sat down and watched on netflix or tv or what oh, wow well, i'm having such a hard time remembering that um you know, it's a, it's a part of having those experiences. And in, in the time of COVID, there's mm -hmm. been a lot more time for introspection and reflection. Mm -hmm. But uh, amazingly, I've tried to st still say very physically active. Yeah. Uh, my new role as managing editor for Design Intelligence keeps me in the game with great minds all over the planet. Yeah. I can call the world's finest architects and thinkers and say, I want to interview you. I want to write an article about you. But then when it comes to the end of the day with COVID, try to stay optimistic and future looking. But I find, and my wife has, has been traveling to our lake house and to Florida. And we've, uh, so I've had more time alone. So when it gets to the end of the evening as a sort of treat or reward or escapism, I do find I'll turn on the TV and watch these escapist kinds of series um <laughs> you know just dark kinds of things even science fiction uh what was one of them called it was called black spot black mirror was black mirror wow. about technology gone wrong mm -hmm. and uh you know some of those kinds of things that are escapist and sometimes dark just as a reflection to lose my alter ego in so that I can hopefully come back and be positive and optimistic in my thinking and writing and living. If you could have dinner with three people, dead or alive, who would they be? Oh, man. Um, I got to see in person when I was in school in Ann Arbor a lecture by Buckminster Fuller, one of the most astounding thinkers of the modern age. Wow. I sat 10 feet in front of him. I only stood understood 10% of what he 
talked about. <laughs> uh, I'd probably choose him, get back together with him again. Uh, I'd have to put some architects in there, even though I don't want to emulate their them in person as role models. They were all kind of uh, buttheads. Personally, people <laughs> like Frank Lloyd Wright and Le Corbusier, who were thought of as the great architects, but they were horrible personally and to their families. Mm -hmm. But I might pick those. And then I might just to, to round out the thing, to kind of show you where I am socially, I might pick uh, Gandhi or, mm. or the Dalai Lama. Right. Or you know, Martin Luther King on sure. a social construct just to round out the the other side of the spectrum. Hmm. If you were an animal, what would you be? Oh, my gosh. That's an incredible question. Maybe I'll go to a sports analogy. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'm sitting here with my coffee cup. I'm a proud Michigan Wolverine. Okay. And here I am with my maize and blue coffee cup. Maybe I'd be a wolverine. Wolverines small, are scary little things. Small, cunning, uh, humble in many ways, but scary in their output and what they can do in other ways. Very interesting. Very good answer. What's the best concert you've ever been to? Oh, man. Um I'll pick. Uh, I'll pick two. Okay. One, and I, and when I was in school, I was not necessarily a bluegrass fan, mm -hmm. but my roommate said, there's this guy coming to play at a bar in Ann Arbor. Let's go see him. And we went and we paid a $5 cover charge, sat right in front of the stage where we could put our feet up on the stage, and who we saw play was... Doc and Merle Watson, <laughs> the greatest bluegrass wow. players of all time. And you saw them in a little and bar with a $5 cover charge. saw them this close. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, my wife was a fan of a guy named Leonard Cohen. I've heard the name. Who one of the, He was one of the great lyricists, poets, and thinkers. And I said, this guy is so dark and depressing, mm -hmm. I'd rather go out and you know, yeah. pull weeds and go listen to this guy. Yeah. But then I heard, heard him and his band play, and we went to see him in the Fox Theater. Yeah. And he came with some of the greatest musicians in the world in his legacy tour, Swan Song, and it was electric. And uh, I'd have to say it was the greatest concert I ever saw. Wow. Uh, queso, guacamole, and salsa. One you can keep forever, one's got to go. And one can remain in the background, but you can never have it again. <laughs> People argue about this all the time in, in our in, so I can only in pick passing. One. You can only pick one to love, and one of them's got to go. Queso salsa and what? Guacamole. And guacamole. I'd probably pick green salsa because I think it's the healthiest. Okay. I need to be more healthier in my eating long term. 
Okay. <laughs> Good answer. Which one are you getting rid of? Which one are you never touching again? I could get rid of queso for those reasons. And mm-hmm. then I would have guacamole in the background, which I also love, and which has healthy keto-like things like avocados, even though they have lots of fat. What's one chain restaurant that you absolutely adore? If I told you, Mike, you can only go to that chain restaurant for the rest of your life, what, what restaurant would that be? Oh, God. You know, if you're traveling to a, a, a new state and, and you're not familiar with the local, you know, specialties or whatever, and you're like, oh, well, there's one of these nearby, Mike, I can go to this one. What, what would that be? Well, I was going to say every six months or so, I, ha- I indulge myself and have to have a Big Mac attack, but I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna scratch that and, and go even worse. Uh-oh. If we're on the road yeah. and, I, and I'm looking for some good comfort food, mm-hmm. I'll go to a Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and, and what my wife will tell me is, Mike... You just ate a 1,000-calorie yeah. breakfast, bud. <laughs> I've been to Cracker Barrel maybe five times in my entire life, and each time I walk out of there like feeling like I've just gained 70 pounds. <laughs> it's this nostalgic yep. kind of thing that you walk in, and it's just wood floors, and you smell the barbecue, and so I go there. Wow. Mike, uh, this was an absolute honor for me to be I, I I've learned actually more in this last hour <laughs> than I have uh in a long time that school had ever taught me uh so um I really really appreciate you taking the time and sitting across from me and talking to me and uh yeah like this this was a huge honor for me thank you so much well I think more so for me and I hope maybe someday we can return the favor I don't know if I'll have you on a podcast, but maybe we can get together for a, a beer and I'll learn some more about you. I would love that. So thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. So everybody, go check out Mike's book on Amazon or wherever you read your books. What's it called, Mike? It's called Managing Design. You can find it on Amazon. Very good. There you go. Check it out. Read it. Learn something like I learned in this last hour. I'm going to go check it out myself. Um As a reminder, if you want to find us, you can find us on Apple and Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on social media, on Instagram, at whateverloganwants. You can also hit up the Watchdog Media umbrella Instagram, which is just Watchdog Media. Same with Twitter. Check out that website. And uh, I'm working on a LinkedIn page. Check out the LinkedIn page. LinkedIn is is a lot of fun. So uh, check it out. Mike, one more time, thank you so much. And... um, Hope to be seeing you again real soon. You're a good man. Thank you, sir.